Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 79. If you were to start the process of selling your company right now, would you know what's most important during that acquisition and what would be most important afterwards? On today's show, we have Rob Walling, who is a co-founder of Drip, who sold to Lead Pages and is one of the top marketing automation tools on the planet. And Rob shares with us today how his core principles of freedom, purpose, and relationships helped guide him through the growth and sale of Hittail.com and Drip. Drip was a bigger business than he originally intended. And because it grew and skyrocketed with popularity and subscribers, making sure that he was true to his principles helped Rob go through the negotiation, picking the right buyer, which is lead pages, and understanding where he wanted to be after the acquisition. Rob has tons of wisdom as he explains how he came to a lot of these principles and the conclusions of selling to lead pages. So without further ado, I really hope you enjoy this episode with Rob. This episode of Life After Business is brought to you by Solidity Financial's Growth and Exit Planning. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the right buyer at the price you want. Good morning, Rob. How you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm super excited to have you on the show because I got exposed into your world a couple years ago in my journey of building this podcast and the whole marketing automation. And you've got a pretty solid staple product out there in the market. But you know, before our before we really dive into it, why don't you give our listeners a little bit of a backdrop of you know how did you dive into becoming an entrepreneur and what was the what was the event that happened where you decided that it was time to to jump in with both feet. Yeah, I mean, entrepreneurship has always kind of called me, even from when I was young. I grew up like solidly blue in a blue collar family. And in order to have enough money to buy batteries or comic books or stuff that I, you know, quote unquote needed back in the day, I had to, I had to make money and the jobs, uh, you know, of, of, I lived out in the country and it was like mowing lawns and raking leaves was not an option because we lived miles from everybody. So I learned to sell, to buy things and mark them up and sell them at school. And by the time I was, um, you know, in let's say eighth grade, I was making between 50 and a hundred dollars a month, just just doing that, just as a middleman, <laughs> and it was it was it was a big deal. It was kind of life changing for me to realize, all right, this is the kind of thing I want to do. So when I got older, I got out of college, and I, I took job after job, and I realized that I'm kind of unemployable. Like I'm everybody's <laughs> worst employee, not because I'm not good. The, the problem is, is I'm I'm quite good at what I do, but I'm also always unhappy with you know the way things are going, unless I am kind of driving the ship. And so that was when I realized I, I need to I need to do my own thing. I need to use my creativity to to build interesting things and and try to make a living for myself. Well, it's interesting too. So uh, uh, prof- professionally unemployable, right? That's right. <laughs> it's, it's, Absolutely. So well, it's interesting how you so you're in the software development and, and coding space is where you you started. So how did you go from the blue collared family into the, the the world that you're in right now? Yeah, I mean, you know, my parents from the time I was young, it was just an expectation that I would go to college. No one in my family before me had been. So I was I I was the second person. It was my older brother who's 4 years older than me and myself. We're the only two that graduated from college, but it but in our family it was an expectation. And so um wound up going to school and I was already, you know, with that in mind, I was writing code 
um, for fun, kind of building text-based games and stuff when I was eight. Hmm. My brother and I got an Apple IIe. This is the the late, I'm sorry, the early 80s. And my again, my parents just said, here's this computer. We don't really understand it, but we're, <laughs> we're sure you'll figure it out. And it was a crap load of money. I think they spent four grand in 1980s dollars Holy for, cow. for an electrician, you know, and, and a, a homemaker. Like someone, my parents really invested in us and I have a lot of gratitude for that. They set us up to succeed, you know? That's pretty sweet. So well, after you're starting to learn how to code and everything like that, you go to college, you know, what was the first business that you decided to jump into? And then how did it all come to fruition? Um, after college, man, I was, I launched a bunch of really dumb businesses that were like trying to, because uh, I knew web development by this time. And this was the late 90s, early 2000s. And I, w- I launched a bunch of stupid things that, that never took off. The one that really started getting traction was uh, a few, it was about, took me about five years. And I finally realized if I'm going to do this without raising funding and I just want to have a small business that generates even a thousand bucks, 2000 bucks a month, just to prove that it can be done. I need to build a real niche product that doesn't have a ton of competition and it needs to solve a real pain point. And so I started working on a few ideas and then there was this software that was, I found on a forum that was actually for sale. The guys wanted to kind of exit the business and it was called .NET Invoice. And it's the super niche invoicing software built in this technology, Microsoft's technology .NET. And I happen to know .NET. And so I bought it from them. It was barely doing any revenue. It was doing maybe 500 a month. And I um, acquired it from them for $11,000, which was a true, it was all the money I had. It was like, you know, kind of my business's life savings. And that was the first time I took that business up to about, between three and five grand a month. And that was like life-changing for me, not even in the revenue it, it generated, but in the mindset shift of like, whoa, this is totally possible. And if I did this once or twice more and I had a few of these, I could stop consulting and stop you know, working for anyone. It would, it would pay for my life. That's the fantastic. So you got the snowball effect. And you know, when you're go back to the the comment that you said about without raising funding, and you're very, very adamant about that because you've also got a book that's surrounding not raising funding. So when you're looking at businesses, you know, where where does that come from about the how you approach the financing of building these businesses? Yeah, I I kind of discovered this process. Um, and I'm in retro, like retroactively, I've named it the stair step approach to bootstrapping. And what I realized is that I didn't want to, well, A, I didn't have the credentials to raise funding. I didn't want to move to the Bay Area or Boston or, you know, Seattle. I mean, there were only a few places, especially in the early 2000s, that you could go to raise funding. I didn't want to uproot my family. I didn't want to work the 90-hour weeks. I didn't want to lose control and get fired by my board like a lot of people. You know, (laughs) there's all these drawbacks to it. And maybe in my naivete, I said, I can do this without that. Mm -hmm. And so what I did was, I, like I said, I, I took a small amount of money and then I built .NET Invoice. I took the profit from that because I was still working full time, right? But mm-hmm. at three to five grand a month, I was socking away in a bank account. I used that then to launch my next thing. And then I used the profit from that to buy my next thing, which was a SaaS app called Hittail in 2011. And then I used all the profit from Hittail to start Drip, which is probably why I'm on the show today because I've exited, I've actually exited Hittail and Drip uh, in the past few years. But for me, it was a parlay. It was it was one thing to the next to the next because I didn't have, you know, quarter million dollars or half a million dollars in venture funding and I didn't have family money and I didn't, you know, I didn't have any of that. All I had was the software development skills and the kind of the entrepreneurial drive to build something. 
Well, and, it, and it's interesting because you said it's the, the control factor, right? When you're when you're bringing in money and you are you know signing up with another partner, it's marriage, and they you, it's no longer your creation to be able to do it. So I'm I'm curious as you you've been very yeah very specific and intentional with some of these things. So when you say that the stair stepper approach makes a lot of sense because you're going from one company and the cash flow to another, where I'm just maybe before we get into the whole journey of the drip and the hit tail and stuff, where. Are you, where's the ultimate goal? Like, what is the top of the stairs for you? Is there a certain area that you're going or a certain thing that you want that you're trying to accomplish? Yeah. For me, the entire time, it, it was three things. It was freedom, purpose, and relationships. All right. And the freedom was the freedom to own my own time and to build what I want and work on what I want and not have to answer to a boss. Purpose was to do things that were interesting to me. Because if I could just sharpen pencils eight hours a day and make 150K, I would have no purpose, right? It would be super boring. So I wanted to work on interesting things. And then relationships is just that I always want to work with people that I enjoy and I want to maintain family relationships, meaning I don't want to push any business so hard that it like erodes my you know connection with my I have three kids, I have a wife. And so so those were the three things I was I was always seeking. And what I realized is with I I had a, a few small software products that were providing a full-time income for me. You know, and this was in California. So it was between 100 and 150K a year. And I was barely working. I was working like 12 hour, 12 hour weeks. And it was fantastic for about 10 months. <laughs> I had freedom and I had relationships, but I didn't really have a purpose. And so that was when I, I realized, all right, I need all three of these things in order to maintain, uh, you know, happiness. I was just going to ask, so like how you got to that. So where were you? Because, you know, the whole thing that's been pushed down everybody's uh, throats these days is the four hour work week. And so how did you, you know, were you sitting somewhere where you were just like, I'm super bored? Or how did you get to that point where you realized that your purpose was missing? Yeah, I um so I, I read the four hour work week in 2007 when it came out and I already had these software products, but I was also consulting. And I thought, you know, if I could just work one or two days a week, my life would be great. And, and I was right to a point. Um, so in 2010, by the, by the time it was 2010, a couple of years later, I had enough software products where, like I said, I wasn't working very much. We had our second child and I hung out with him for almost 10 months, eight to 10 months. And I would just walk around town. I would meet friends. I was kind of I was like a stay-at-home dad, but I was making a full-time income (laughs) in these products. And it was fantastic. And I have such fond memories. You know, you can never get that time back, right? Of all that time, he and I hung out together. By the end of that eight to 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 10 months, I was really chomping at the bit. And and I I realized that when I wasn't creating things, that I would slowly kind of wither. And I became unhappy. I started you know, very mild, not depression, but I felt myself just unmotivated and really lethargic. And I was kind of like, I need to snap out of this and I need to to take another challenge to get that purpose back. So how do you, what was the, you know, process? Cause that obviously probably led into this, the, the drip phase. So what was the way that you, what process or were there resources or something that to help you find where your purpose was? I mean, what, cause I think that's a big challenge that a lot of people have going, okay, so this is great, but how do you actually go? What is the process that you go to actually find that purpose? Yeah. So there's, there's a couple things I did. One is I, a skill I learned from, from my wife, Sherry, who you've interviewed on the show. She would go on these annual retreats where she would go off the grid away from me and the kids for 48 to 72 hours and go to the beach or um, the mountains or just somewhere far away and disconnect and leave her computer at home. And she would read and think and sketch and she brought butcher paper. And it was this question of, 
what brings me life? What brought me life over the last year? What did I not enjoy? What do I want to do more of? What do I want to do less of? What does the next year look like? And it's this, this time when you just let your mind open up. And it, it typically takes 12 hours before I, before I can even like get some good thought done because my mind still races with thoughts of work and schedule and kids and et cetera, et cetera. But once you get in that mindset, you can really, there's a, you can gain some self-knowledge, you know, and really start understanding where you are and, and where you want to head. So that's what I did. I, I was doing those twice a year. And at certain pivot points, it really helped kind of shape, shift my focus. And at the end of this, this 10 month stint with, with my child, I went on a retreat and I had the, I wrote things down. Like I need, I need to, to do something bigger. I need to be more ambitious. I need to make a difference. I need to create things. You know, it was all these notes of like, this mm-hmm. is what's going to change how I feel. And, uh, and sure enough, I was, I was right for the time being. These things t- for me tend to go in about 18 to 24 month cycles where I go, go, go. And then by the end of it, I'm like, whew, and now I'm done with that. On to the next <laughs> thing. So, and is, so after you're done with that retreat, is that when you decided to start the drip company? That actually was when I bought Hittail. Okay. So I acquired, um, I, I, and I was going to either build or buy something, right? Mm-hmm. I can do either. And I started breaking ground on code and it, it's just such an arduous process to build something from scratch. And I knew it was going to be probably 12 to 18 months before I had launched it and found product market fit, which is where you have something that people actually want to pay for. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot of iteration to do that. And so I was doing that while in the back back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, if something came along that I could acquire, because I had acquired several things before that, I was thinking I, I would do that because it's it, basically, you know, for whatever it is, 20, 30 grand uh, or 50, whatever you mm-hmm. buy it for, it'll leap you ahead 18 months. Yep. And I was interested in, in getting there. So I was doing some cold email outreach to some old SaaS apps that I had known about. I was looking on forums. I was looking on Flippa, you know, I was just kind of looking around. And I, uh, one of the cold emails I sent was to the the owner of Hittail.com, and it was just a, a decaying business, you know, and it hadn't, no one was paying attention to it. At one point, it had been in like Inc. Magazine and Forbes and I, uh, the New York Times. I mean, all these people had written about it, hmm. and it was like one of the top 10 apps of 2007 coming out of New York. And then it had just kind of, you know, gone off the radar. No one was maintaining it. So I was able to purchase it for, I think it was, yeah, it was 30, 30,000 bucks. Which again, in, in the parlay, like I said earlier, I had about 50 grand in my business bank account by that time. And so I wrote most of it to buy that. And I spent the other 20 to re- rehab it. I had to hire a designer. Mm-hmm. And I had to move servers and some other stuff. So this was a, this was a pretty big gamble for me. This was, this was 2011. So what, a, you know, when you're, because I'm interested in that, like as you, as your mindset going in to the hit, hittail.com and drip, because that's even further down the road is how, yep. how was your mindset different when you got these three things that you're trying to hit the freedom, purpose, and relationships? How do you look at a business like that? So like when you go in there and you're buying it, you know, what is the ultimate goal? Were you starting with the end in mind? Did you have certain milestones or certain things that you were trying to do with the business? Yeah, there was, I wanted to a, get, gather more per, so I already had freedom in relationships, right? I was kind of chilling. I had a full-time income and I, and I was doing fine with the relationships. The, the purpose is what I was missing. And the business was such a challenge. So what, another thing I learned about myself, you asked me earlier, how do you know, how do you think about what to do next? Mm-hmm. I take, I've taken several of these kind of personality tests, which Sherry, my wife's a psychologist, she kind of rolls her eyes <laughs> at some of them, but, but I do, I love finding out stuff about myself that I kind of knew subconsciously, but mm-hmm. I maybe didn't know on the surface. And um, I took Finder. Yeah. Uh, I've taken the Enneagram. 
Uh, I have it on my list to take the Colby A, but all three of these can kind of help help you do stuff. And StrengthsFinder told me I'm a learner and I'm a maximizer. Okay, and a learner is where you are unhappy unless you're ne- learning new things and being challenged by new things, which I was not at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm a maximizer. It says you love taking things that are that are good and making them great, and you don't necessarily like you know taking things that are really crappy and making them good. And mm-hmm. so that's what Hittail was. Hittail was this good app at one point. And it was just flailing, you know, at one point it had peaked at $5,000 a month in, in MRR and it was now doing, I forget, it was like 1500 when I acquired it. So it was really just a king. And I saw the potential in it though. It had tons of inbound links. It had a really good, like a loyal customer base, even though it wasn't large. And I, and I thought I can maximize this thing. And so that kind of lined up with who I understood myself to be and what potentially would, would make me happy by, you know, redesigning this app, rehabbing it. And then the goal was to like 10x or 20x the revenue to a point where it would have a meaningful impact on our lives. That was my personal challenge was can I, you know, right now I make a, you know, at the time I make a full-time living, low six figures, whatever, but can I double or triple my income over the next couple of years? And not for the money, but for the freedom and the challenge is why I wanted it. So over the course of the handful of years that you own that, what were some of the major milestones and, you know, in your feedback loop, were you hitting the milestones that you wanted to? Yeah, I was being pretty ambitious and I was, my two milestones were A, I wanted to learn as much as I could about new marketing approaches because things are changing so quickly. And I just, I gobbled up all these resources on Facebook ads, which were just coming to fruition then um, on the new side of SEO because I'd been doing a bunch of, of search engine optimization. Like there were a bunch of technical marketing skills I wanted to learn. And all of those, I like, it, it was amazing. Like it, it grew fast and I, I got to learn, which is like the two, my two favorite things in the world. In addition, um, I had loose revenue milestones and I think I 10X'd it within 15 months maybe. So it got up to about 15,000 MR from 1,500 to 15,000. And that was a great milestone because I was able to then hire help, which I really had only hired virtual assistants before because I never had the budget, but that allowed me to kind of hire someone local. And then I eventually, yeah, grew it up to between 25 and 30,000 MRR. And that was, I was very proud of that. You know, it was less about, oh, I look at this money. It was more like, I accomplished what I set out to do and I'm, I had purpose. You know, I was really yep. happy. So at what point, what triggering event within Hittail then, did you start finding that your purpose was no longer there or was there a triggering event that said, okay, I do want to sell this and I'm now bored or, you know, how did that transition period happen? Yeah, it was, it was both. Well, it was two things. One was I did start getting a little bored and my, t- my expiration date tends to be about 18 to 24 months working on the same project. And then I kind of just lose interest. And so since Hittail was is its monthly subscription, it had recurring revenue, and I, uh, you know, kind of brought in help to help try to run it. Didn't work that well over time. It did. It gradually decayed back to I can't remember what it was when I sold it, but it was in the teens, probably in revenue. And that was I think I sold it in 2015. So I kept it for several years. The other reason I I wanted to sell it is Google kept screwing around with its algorithm and with um, the way it like sourced keywords and it kept breaking Hittail and it made me realize, I started asking myself, is this a business I want to own for 10 years? Like in a decade, is Hittail still going to be a solvent, like viable business? And when the answer was, I'm not sure because Google keeps accidentally breaking it, it made me think I want to build a, a, probably a business that's, you know, more a long-term business. And that's when 
you know, the idea for Drip came out of a, of a problem we had with Hittail. Well, that, that's, that's beautiful because it's a good segue in because, you know, you and I were talking before we got on the show about the value builder uh, system, which is John Warlow's uh, book, Built to Sell, and some of the philosophies behind there. So, I'm I, I just super curious because you're. I love how you've got this this sequence of the evolving philosophy on business. So, how did Drip and what what did you learn from Hittail and the sustainability of that? And how did the whole Drip idea come out? And kind of walk us through the the uh, origination of that. Sure. I mean, I, as I started looking at Hittail, and I thought this is a great. It's a great little business. It was a great step on my stair step. You know, kind of up the chain. But I've, I'm not learning much anymore, so I've kind of lost that purpose. The revenue kind of flattened, and it was like I could try to I could build more features and try to level up, but it was like ah, I just I feel like I want a bigger challenge and a longer term thing. And so my the thing in my head had been a lot of like I want to 10x. I want to go from uh, you know my little business is doing three grand, and I thought boy if I could build a business that's doing thirty grand a month that would be fascinating. And and I did. And so my next thing was like I want to build a business that's doing three hundred grand a month. You know just to pick a number, right? But like. Mm-hmm. I want to build something that's a multi-million dollar annual recurring revenue, and Hittail's never going to do that, like it, just because of the way it's structured and, yep. the, and the audience it serves. And so I made some notes, and I said, "Look, I want to build a business, you know, a seven-figure business. I want it, uh, the price point to be a lot higher, so churn is lower. I want to serve real businesses that are, you know, doing uh, have their own revenue, and I want it in a in a space where I can't get killed by Google, you know, or Facebook or Twitter, where it's not like some I'm not relying on a third party, and mm-hmm. so." As I'm thinking that through, we had a, an issue with Hittail where we had a lot of traffic, but we were not getting as many email subscribers as I would like. So I worked with uh, a contractor, his name's Derek, and I said, look, can we do a little JavaScript pop-up widget um, in the bottom right-hand corner of every page of, of Hittail where we just collect email addresses, and then we send them into MailChimp, and we do an autoresponder sequence to educate them and upsell Hittail. And we did, and it had like a 30% impact, a certain 30% lift on our, uh, you know, visitor to trial numbers. And I was like, this is game changing, but it took Derek, who's a super sharp guy, took him like a week to build it, week and a half. And I thought to myself, this is insane. Cause that was not that, <laughs> was not that big of a deal. And so that was the initiation or, you know, initial thought of like, well, Derek, why don't we, why don't I hire you to then to just build that into its own application where with one line of JavaScript, anyone can get that functionality. And so I got, you know, the domain name and uh, picked the name Drip and Derek started, uh, started cranking away on it. And the, and the genesis of Drip started. <laughs> That's right. That was it. So yep. um, what was you do? You obviously had some overlap from when you sold Hittail and then when you developed uh, and when you actually formed Drip and started working on that full time. That's right. So I was using, I was basically taking all the net profit from Hittail, feeding it into Drip. Because as Derek and myself, I mean, I was paying us. And um, Derek then became a W-2 employee. Derek later became my co-founder, in essence, kind of retroactively, because he had put so much into it and he was so valuable that, that I felt like, you know, we both felt like he, he deserved some equity. And then there were server costs and there was all types of stuff. So yeah, I, again, I was parlaying one thing to the next to the next. So obviously, you're, you're, I, I've, I can feel the fact that you found your purpose and how you find your flow, which uh, we've talked about, that we're, the zone and making sure that you're happy because you got your freedom financially as you've been building all these, you got the relationships that you've been forming and you've got the, you've kind of found your, your, 
niche on or your the purpose the purpose yeah. right so how you know when you're looking at drip and what you were developing then i mean did you look at the business going okay so because you wrote your notes down seven figure you know, all these different things that you wanted the business to be so how did you plan ahead of what you were trying to do with drip i mean it's because that's a different kind of model based on the other businesses that you had owned yep. because of the fact that you of those criteria that you wrote down so how did you go forward with the different thoughts yeah I, in all honesty, I had planned for Drip and uh, to be a, another lifestyle business. And I thought, oh, boy, really? it'd be great. Yeah, I really did. I was not trying to take over the world with it. That just didn't... Because, you know, it's interesting. Again, personality test stuff, like the Enneagram. I'm a, I'm a creative or a maker. Is I'm like an artist when I, when I come to it, which is interesting, right? Because I'm left brain. I'm a coder. But I've always been more enthralled with the, with the idea of making things than the achievement right? It's like a different, it's a different skill set or different desire. I don't want to achieve just for achievement's sake. I want to achieve while I'm making things. So I've been in bands, I write songs, I, you know, I'm always like making. And so I really looked at it as like, let's build this interesting tool and it'll be great. I do have these goals of revenue, but I don't particularly want to work 70 hour weeks or grow this to a 50 person team where I'm managing people or where we are forced to raise funding or where, you know, all these, mm-hmm. all these things. I'm not anti-funding by the way. I never realized I've been negative on it. I have I'm an angel investor now. I have a dozen angel investments. I have friends who take funding, but it wasn't something I personally wanted to do. And yeah, so that, that's how I was thinking about it was to make a lifestyle business. But once we launched it, there was uh, we got a decent amount of uptick. And I think it was, it was doing about eight to 10 grand a month, which was great from the launch, right from the start for two dudes in a closet, basically <laughs> um, working on my porch, you know. But the problem was, is we were churning out. Uh, we really didn't have product market fit. And as are, we had like advanced users using us who I respected. They kept giving us feedback of like, just build in the way to do automation, just build in a way to do these more advanced features. And once we did that, it was almost like grabbing onto a rocket ship where it's huh. like, I, I'm, I have to hire people and we have to get an office because we're now growing three to five grand a month. You know, I used to have entire businesses that did that. And it was just, <laughs> it was just like we to just to stop support and to keep the servers going and to keep the features going. It was like, you know, this, it was exhilarating, but it definitely wasn't where I had originally planned to take it. Well, obviously you found a niche that and a need and a, and a problem that you were solving if people were, were gravitating that fast. And at that point, so as far as like the timelines for the listeners, because, you know, Drip competes with, you know, Infusionsoft or HubSpot or Marketo or Active Campaign, all those, all these tools that came around and were you, a little bit before those, because a lot of those other people had a tons of VC backing, right? So it, I, yep. I find it interesting about how you snuck in and then what you did. So where was everybody else in the same line for, for the uh, kind of the marketplace? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really interesting point because we launched in 2013. And at the time, ActiveCampaign was still like a white label downloadable software. They weren't SaaS yet. Infusionsoft was the 900 pound gorilla or 800 pound gorilla in the room. Like everybody knew about Infusionsoft in kind of the small business space. HubSpot is t- five times more expensive, 10 times more expensive. So more in the mid market or enterprise space. But Infusionsoft and Entreport were the two that were really duking it out. And we came in and we were like an easier to use infusion software, less expensive and way simpler and really built from the ground up mm-hmm. without a lot of legacy, right? Because Infusionsoft had been around since I think it's like 2006 or seven. So their, their code base is a little crufty. And, and again, I have respect for all these companies. Yep. I'm not talking smack because they're competitors, but it's just the, you know it's the facts of the situation. And so we were able to swoop in and really with, with a new code base, we're able to move really fast and kind of start taking their market share. And so we actually were taking people 
kind of pulling down from Infusionsoft and Octoport and then pulling up from uh, MailChimp and Aweber, right? They were, they were very yep. simple tools and they don't have the automation. And so that was like 2014 and 2015 were these years of just hyper growth for us, like I had never experienced, you know, especially with uh, no funding. And that was one of the challenges was when you're growing that quickly and the three to five grand a month was the early growth. It got faster, <laughs> the more, you know, and so when you're growing that quickly, it's hard to have enough cash in the bank just to keep things solvent. So how did, how did you end up going through that process as you're looking, okay, as that rocket ship starts going up and you're realizing that this is no longer just a lifestyle business, we're going to be walking your kid down the road and you've got like a full-time enterprise that you're running. How did you financially back that? I mean, were you just self-funding it? Or yeah. how, did, how did that work? Because you, you had mentioned previously that you were, you know, obviously you got forced into a little bit of other things because of the, the how, how substantial you were growing. Right. Yeah. We, I was self-funding it out of Hittail revenue. I um, was pulling off of Drips revenue. It's nice to have a subscription business where people pay you in advance, right? Mm-hmm. And then I, Derek and I, by this time, you know, were essentially co-founders making the decisions and we were seriously evaluating the um, seriously evaluating a round of angel funding because um, mm-hmm. at the time with the growth and, and the level we were at, raising a half million dollar round at a, at a pretty nice valuation would not have been hard. Um, and so we were constantly struggling with that. We were making ends meet. You know, we never missed payroll. The servers were always up, but I was stressed the whole time, right? It was like, you're on the edge where we'd grow by 10K of, of monthly recurring revenue. And I'd be like, all right, that's enough to hire another developer. Let's go. So it was <laughs> always right at the edge, you know? Yep. And um, yeah, that is what led us to really start seriously considering angel funding. And during that time, we started being approached by potential acquirers. Well, I was, I was going to say, cause you, when you're getting to the point that you're at there, you, you're probably your mindset starts to shift about what is the longevity of this business. And so when you had mentioned that you had this criteria of this next business that you wanted, one was longevity and you're starting to think about angel investors and these different things, you know, where was your head at and where did you start to, where was the vision of and the future of drip in your head and how did that change as you were having some of these conversations? It's a, it's a really good question. You know, I mean, we had gone from just being nothing to being one of the top 12 marketing automation providers in the world, according to data which is a market share anal, you know, analysis platform. And it was, it was at that time, it was five people in a, basically a, a big closet in Fresno. And people were emailing us like, how are you guys doing this? You know, <laughs> it was, it was such, a, such a surprise. And so the thought there was, look, Derek and I would talk and I'd say, look, we could raise a round of angel investment. And then that puts us in here for another three to five years of, of, of doing the grind, you know, and to, to call it affectionately. I mean, it, running a business day to day and scrambling like that is as much exhilaration and purpose as you get from it. It, is, it can also be tough you know, mentally, yep. or, you know, we do have these acquirers starting to, to poke at us a little bit and say, Hey, have you, th-, you know, it's starting to feel us out. And it's like, should, should I even return their emails? Cause prior I had not, right. I just now not interested. And that's when we decided, look, we could at least see where, pull those strings, pull the threads and see where they go, you know, and, and if they don't wind up, then there's not much time wasted. But if they do end up being something, this could be potentially a, you know, life-changing outcome for us in a shorter time frame. You know, we could still be involved in the business, which we are today, both Derek and I still work full-time uh, on Drip. And maybe we could, you know, take some money off the table for us without having to, you know, again, raise a round and then wait three to five years for something else to happen, you know? So how, when you're getting these inquiries and I'm curious about the process that you did, that you went through as you started answering them, but, you know, you, you know, going back to when you're on that retreat and you were very purposeful with the three different things, how were you 
calibrating what was important to you versus you know getting caught up in the hype of what you had been building and making sure that you didn't make the wrong decision how like what was the process that you're going through yeah it was a lot of um it was a lot of thinking over a long term so it was not there was nothing impulsive about it it was never i woke up and said i'm going to sell this business it was more like derek and i having one conversation a week hey do we need to raise funding are we doing or do we do nothing you know do we just keep growing it the way we are do we slow down growth to just to to have the cash flow meet do we sell and it was this six month mulling over you know mm-hmm. of he and i and then i would do it with sherry who's a really good sounding board um, i'm in a mastermind group i would do it with those guys and i would also just go on these retreats as i said and every time it was coming back to you know what is it that that i want long term will this give me freedom purpose and relationships and are we at the point where where we would even evaluate you know an exit because when you're growing like that it's a struggle of like well if i sell now am i leaving money on the table should we just not pull the threads yet you know, can we get back to them mm-hmm. in six months? Because again, we were growing so fast, it's like we could almost double the value of the business in, in a certain amount of time, as long as it doesn't top out, right? Because if the growth stops, then suddenly you're you're mm-hmm. negotiating based on net profit rather than than revenue multiples. Mm-hmm. So um, it was it was tough. It was not clear cut. I mean, to answer your question, it yeah. was not like it came out. It was just mulling it over and thinking. What was some of the best advice that you got during that process? During the decision to sell, I'm or, or even you know to raise or to stay. Um, I th- you know the the advice I got was from probably from Sherry who talked about she kept saying you know where where do you want to be in 2 years where do you want to be in 5 years right and where and do you still want to be working on drip um think out further than just the short term I got a lot of good advice once we got into acquisition talks. That's when I talked to other founders who had been acquired because it was more of a tactical thing, right? What should I do here? How should I think about this? But I, I, I struggled with the decision to consider, even consider selling, you know, with no price in mind or no, like having never talked to anyone uh, gone through a, a big acquisition like this, I found that an extremely personal decision. And so I didn't actually talk to many other founders, which maybe I should have. And what were the questions or the thoughts going through your head as that personal decision was being made? It was things like, do I still want to be working on this in two years, five years, 10 years? You know, is this something that really excites mm-hmm. me that I think I have longevity on? It was a question of, I'm stressed now. Is it going to get better or worse? Or is it going to stay the same? Mm-hmm. It was, do I want to grow? You know, because at the by the time we got acquired, we were about, it was eight full-time and, and two contractors, about 10 people. And I kept asking myself, do I want to run a 30 or 40 person company? Is that something that I will enjoy? So the, those are the types of things I was mulling over. So then that, that as you kind of have a little bit more clarity on those different um, decisions, you start pulling these threads and answering the emails to the acquirers. What was the process and who was reaching out to you and kind of explain how you started setting up those meetings and the, and the conversations that you were having? Yeah, it was, so there were five different inbound uh, companies within, I think it was about eight, over 18 months. And frankly, most of them went nowhere, you know, as I think is, is apt to happen. But each time I did it, each time I responded and said, hey, yeah, I might be interested in talking. And then we'd, we'd do a phone call and then I'd find out, oh, they really, they're kind of looking just to acquire the team, right? They're looking for an aqua hire, you know, mm-hmm. or, and that's not, that's not something we were going to do. Or there was a, kind of a private equity firm that I could tell was just really doing, going to be all about dollars and cents. And that also was not something I was super interested in. And then 
uh, you know, a couple of them didn't go anywhere, but then there was this, there were, there were actually two that were pretty interesting. And, and the one that the choir that eventually, um, bought us is a company called lead pages here in, in Minneapolis. And that one, the reason that that really caught my eye and that I followed up pretty heavily with it is I, I knew lead pages. I knew they had the funding they had raised. And I also, the CEO of Lead Pages and I had crossed paths in the past. I'd interviewed on my podcast and we kind of lived in the, in the entrepreneurial space. So, which is super interesting. I want to dive into the, the process that you guys went through in that. But, you know, as you're, you know, what, what, what I find interesting, Rob, is that, so you have, you know, have said that you've got this 18 to 24 month window before you get bored or you're kind of onto the next project. And I, I'm, I don't know exactly how far you're into drip at this point, but you know, some of those other possibilities were good ways to get your chips off the table completely and move on to the next page. I mean, so did you find like a different sort of investment emotionally with drip at this point to go past that 18 to 24 months? I did. That's a good, that's a good observation. I was, um, I think we we're at about three years by this time. And for me, my personal interest in the topic and the technology and the, and the, just the business was waning for sure. But I had employees. I had a, a company that was used by, you know, I don't even remember the number, but a thousand maybe customers paying at the time. And a lot of them were people I knew personally. Because again, you know, I had this personal brand in the, in the entrepreneurial founder space, startup space. A lot of them were relying on drip. And I kept thinking to myself, I can't just can't just bail on it. You know what I'm saying? Right, it's, right. This is not just a little app that I'm going to sell the technology. Like there are people relying on me. And um, uh, yeah, so there, were, there was definitely, there were a complex mix of emotions there. Well, I think that's interesting too, because you know, what you're feeling at that point where you got these people that are relying on your services to run their lives. And I think, you know, some of the other people that we've interviewed or that have gone through acquisitions, really thinking about how your product and your service is going to continue because it impacts the ripple effect, right? Of how your customers rely on you. And then it also reflects on you. So if you would have just sold it to someone that acquire and then they just shut down drip and you're literally letting a thousand people down, how would that affect your happiness? Because I think even though you pull a bunch of money off the table, it could completely backfire. Exactly. And that, that was, so I had a couple deal breakers going in. Number one, I did not want the product to get shut down for exactly the reason you said. Number two, I did not want the, any of my employees to get let go because I'd built a really good team and there was no reason to do that. And so those were instant deal breakers going into uh, to any acquisition. And I should, I want to be clear, like I was also, I was not burned out, right? I mean, I was stressed and I was, you know, tired and not super like jazzed every day, but I was, we were still kicking ass. And so it wasn't like we had to sell, right? We were profitable. We were growing quickly and I, it wasn't like I was pulling my mm -hmm. hair out, but I knew that at some point I would be, and I didn't know how long. You know, I didn't know if that'd be a year or five years until I would be. And so the, the concept or the idea of, of selling was a bit intriguing, but I'm also a pretty measured and a pretty calculated person. I don't do impulsive things. And so it wasn't like, oh, I'm just burned out and I got to just fire sale this thing. You know, it was, I looked out and thought, boy, if I even start talking to someone about funding, that's going to take three months to, to raise it. If I start talking to someone about an acquisition, it might take six to 12 months to complete. So let's play long ball here, you know, and mm -hmm. not get to the point where I am burned out and I just want to walk away from this thing. And that was my kind of measured thought process the whole time is like, at least be, 
least be smart about this and think over the long term. Well, you're not, you're not forced into a corner. You're actually able to, you know, as you're having the guy, from what I'm seeing, I mean, you're, you're able to have conversations with these potential acquirers that, and having questions, you're asking questions that are important to you and you're able to get the answers because you know what you're asking and why. Yep. And there was a, a, you know, right before we jumped on, you were saying that you would, you know, obviously with your coding background and the type of individual you are, you do a lot of self-research. What was the, where were the places that you were going to educate yourself along what questions to ask? And so you did have eyes wide open as you were going down this route. Yeah, I listened to, so I'm a big audiobook guy. You can obviously read these books, but I say, uh, I listened to them. I listened to uh, Built to Sell by John Warlow. I probably, I had read that years ago, but I, I refreshed myself, listened to it two or three times. And then um, Finish Big by uh, Bo Burlingham was one I listened to several times. A lot of that, it was funny how much of it some of it applied to me. A lot of it didn't because for me, so my legacy and my like identity was not tied up in my business. And that's a big part of Finish Big. Um, for me, I still have, you know, I have a blog, I have two podcasts, I've written three books, I have a conference like that. That's more of me. And if those things mm-hmm. went away, I would struggle. But the thought of like, oh no, I won't be working on Drip, you know, next month, that didn't, that wasn't super disappointing to me. Like I think Finish Big, you know, focuses on. Which is in, did that help? Because I, you know, I was more in that camp where I was right. like, you know, I was just kind of like, what the hell happened? Afterwards? Right. right. Um, and was there, did that help almost like therapeutically, like where, hey, I can go into this knowing that I can approach this from a rational perspective and practical perspective instead of, you know, having the emotions to the side must have been a heck of a lot easier. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've, the stories that I've read and heard and the interviews, because I listened to a lot of built to sell radio uh, during this time as well. And the emotions that I kept hearing, I thought, man, I'm really not in that particular boat. And so I can be a little more rational, although there were, there were certainly some irrational moments I will, I will give myself, but it wasn't about, oh, what am I going to do next? Mm-hmm. It was always, you know, it was always about me getting angry at some, some negotiation or something. <laughs> I, I was able to, you know, detach myself while still, but still keeping my, I had principles, right? It was like, we can't fire my people. We can't shut down my app. You know, it was, it was those kind of things, but uh, it helped for sure. Well, that's actually huge, right? You had, I, I want to actually highlight that because you had principles that were important because I think what happens is a lot of the, you know, negotiations gone south or the, you know, the people that aren't happy afterwards, they don't have these set of principles going in. So they don't know how to judge whether they've succeeded or not because they have no map of, of how, to, how to guide themselves through the, the, the decisions. That's right. Yeah, I had one other deal breaker I should mention, and it was that if I was going to, if we were going to sell, that I needed to walk away with enough money that I never had to work again. That was the that was a deal breaker for me. So I, it was a non-starter if we weren't going to be talking in that range. Got it. So let, let's maybe uh, peel that back a little bit. So was it a, a lump sum or was it a, um, a cash flow? Because I think there's a, you know, how you get to that dollar amount is mm-hmm. a complicated situation, which we don't have to, mm-hmm. you know, dive too much into, but you sure. have all these taxes and all these different things. So did you have like a lump sum net proceeds dollar amount that you were going after or? <laughs> that- that's how I framed it. Yep. I looked, I did, a, again, I, I'm into investing. I'm a left brain kind of guy. And so I went back and looked, um, I did a bunch of research of like, what, how much does it take to retire? You know, even though I'm not going to retire, but I want to know mm-hmm. how to think about it. And there's a lot of research been done. There's a Trinity study that looked at the 4% rule. Yep. That if you take 4% of a portfolio, uh, it can last you 30 years. And then they, they did a big um, study from, you know, every, they started every year from like 1935 to, you know, 2000 or something like that. Um, um, or I guess it's 1990. And almost all the years, I think there were two years where it wouldn't have lasted uh, 30 years based on a 4% rule. But what they found was 
most of the endings, you wound up with more money at the end of the 30 years than you did when you started. Mm -hmm. And so there was a second study done that's like, boy, does the 4% rule actually apply perpetually, you know, unless you mm -hmm. have a run of bad luck early on? Could you, could you literally, you know, uh, retire on 4% and, and with a decent amount of luck, just kind of have money to leave to your heirs. And, and they supported that in most cases, that's actually true. So I started thinking through that and I actually backed my personal, I started saying, you know, I'm a little more um, conservative than that. So three and a half percent was the number I started looking at. And then I started thinking, well, how much money do I want, you know, each year? And that was kind of a bare minimum of, of mm -hmm. how I started thinking about it. And I said, if after taxes, after, you know, a co-founder gets paid, after broker commission, you know, kind of after everything, if I can walk away with this sum and have that much cash in the bank, in the market, in the assets that I, that I manage, because I'm actually pre, I'm decent at, at managing money and, and diversifying and that stuff. So I have confidence that I wasn't going to piss it away. Mm -hmm. um, that was it. That's how I calculated it. So then I had to work backwards from there, right? And say, obviously, there's probably going to be progress payments. And so it all has to kind of add up to that. Again, it's a principle and it's a, and it's a way to, it's a rock that you're guiding the negotiations at, which again, you know, I, I'm, I remember part of our deal and a lot of other people that I have uh, worked with where they, they get so hung up on this gross dollar amount that you're going to be getting, you know, it's like, Oh, we were bought for this. I'm like, yeah, but what did they walk away with? Yeah, <laughs> that's important. exactly. And yeah. And then what kind of terms and conditions are they stuck with after the fact? So, um, let, let, let's progress and going, okay. So as you're going down the, the route with the lead pages and clay and the, what were what were some hangups that you had or what were the things that you really liked about um, the relationship building throughout the negotiations? Um, that, I struggled with that. I want to be honest. I, I had known Clay. He emailed me in mid-2015 and it took uh, just a, almost a year. Maybe it was even, th no, it was 13 months until the, the acquisition closed. Um, but about six months of that was pretty hard negotiation. I struggled. A friend of mine had given me advice and he said, you know, every conversation from here on is, is part of the negotiation. Mm -hmm. And that was helpful, but it was also for my personality, it was a being very cautious. It was also probably uh, wasn't great because I was suspicious of everything and probably to a way that, that I shouldn't have been. It made in the end, everything worked out. And Clay and I are actually friends. We hang out and, and have breakfast and stuff. So like there was no there was no blood that, you know, it was lost and we did build a relationship, but I was probably a little too on guard, a little too much. And it stressed me out. I think, I think I added stress to my, to myself during that time because I just was so concerned. I told my wife at one point, uh, I could say something and, and, you know, lose a million dollars off the, off the purchase price, you know? And she was like, is that true? Is that actually true? Or do you just, are you just so wound up about it? And the fact was, I was so wound up about it. You know, I, I think it cautiously optimistic and all the, however you want to word it, I think, you know, I, that feeling that you had is very real and I totally have experienced it and I've watched other people and, but you know, I, on the, the flip side, Rob, I've seen it happen. You know what I mean? And and it's yeah. because you don't know the people across the table from you until you're actually married with them. And yeah. I've, I've watched it. And so it's, you know, from what I, you know, just my two cents is that like, because if you're an open, honest book, which I can tell you are, then it's internal conflict that you're dealing with because you're protecting yourself, but you're also trying to be yourself. And so it's just this constant turmoil going on inside. That's a really good way to describe it. It was turmoil because I'm, 
like by nature, like you said, I want to just tell the truth. Mm-hmm. I want to say, I want to put my cards on the table. And I also just want, I like saying yes to people. Like that was one of the greatest things when I was a developer is people would say, hey, can we build this? And I'm like, yes, we can. <laughs> I could totally kill that. So me saying no the whole time and resisting and like, that doesn't work. Well, why doesn't it work? And then defending that, I would just get riled up. Like mm-hmm. I would hair on the back of my neck because it's like, well, now we're just arguing is what it felt. <laughs> Even though isn't that what negotiating is, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's an, it, it, it's an interesting process. So it, how... You know, I'm curious. So you go to the closing and you sign those documents and the money gets wired and everything's kind of complete. What what were your, what was the emotions that you were feeling? Well, I mean, there was a huge sense of relief when it finally came through when the, when the wire hit the bank account. I was actually at my son, my oldest son's cello camp, and I was supposed to be in like helping them out. And they, there were like docs that hadn't been signed. And so I'm on my phone getting the email for lead pages. And it's like, you have to sign these docs because we have to send the wire in the next 30 minutes. And so I was getting an evil eye stare from like other parents. <laughs> and I was like, guys, seriously, you just have no idea what's going on right now. Like, my life is changing as we speak, you know? So it's completely surreal. And I'm like on my, on my iPhone outside and I sign it. And then I went back in and then I get a text from Derek and he's, it's, it's a screenshot of the uh, bank balance. That's awesome. And I was like, whoa, wow. yeah, it was I almost, I got super choked up, right? Because it's such a journey. Mm-hmm. And then, but I also remember, um, I remember the stress not boiling away for probably, and, and it not feeling, feeling real for uh, probably a good month or two after that. What was, how did the operations and how did everything change after that? What was kind of the arrangement for autonomy or like the integration with the companies and such? Yeah. You know, the, the cool part about Clay and the way everything was set up was he was super upfront about it. He said, we're not going to let people, any of your people go. We want to build on top, you know, on top of drip and continue to have it be this great product. Um, You guys are going to be, what you guys do today works. And so keep doing that. Like let's, let's be more of an Instagram, Facebook acquisition where it's, you're held at arm's length and you're just cranking away and let us basically feed more customers into you. And it was, um, that clay lived up to everything that that he said would happen in the deal you know and that was super cool i mean we had a, a, you know you get 80 90% of it written down but you can't you can't write everything in a contract it just doesn't work that way and so there were there were some verbal things between he and i and and you know he lived up to every one of those and uh, you know hopefully i did as well that's awesome because I, you know, one of the, you know, a lot of times uh, people on the show or, you know, a lot of the built to sell um, radio interviews that you've probably heard where people will say that they don't get into writing and everything changes afterwards. Yeah. So I yeah. think, you know, that's where the trust in the person that's buying you, but then also getting it down into writing and having that balance is super important. I agree. Uh, how did your like roles or freedom or autonomy change afterwards? I mean, are you still able to do whatever you want or say yes to everything or is it a little bit different? For the most part, I am. I mean, my role became more focused, which was good. Like I gave up HR and payroll and, you know, health insurance administration. (laughs) And even like I gave marketing to lead pages because I was running that and I gave support to to the lead pages team. And, you know, just slowly, now I just focus on product. And so I I was able to grow. We were three engineers when we got hired and now we have 16. And I was able to really focus on just building the product faster, building it better with more resources. So it's been a net net positive, not only the ability to take money off the table, but I have been less stressed over the past 18 months that which you know since the acquisition than than the, the 18 months before that. So do you have freedom purpose and relationships? I do. Yeah, I do. I have the freedom I have most of the freedom 
Um, cause I'm pretty, you know, I'm a VP of product here. So it's not like I have to be here at nine and clock out at five and that kind of stuff. Um, I take, I, the one thing I'd probably change is I might take more vacation. I might travel more, but no one's ever get, we do have unlimited vacation. No one's ever given me crap about it. It's just my own internal thing of like my team's here working. I struggle to, to do that as much as I used to. Um, but overall, yeah, freedom's there. The purpose is still there because I'm working on drip, right? And then my relationships are strong because I'm not stressed. And so I can spend time thinking about other people. So, you know, now you're going on probably what, four, five years since you started. So you're way past that 18 yeah. month gate that you uh, were yep. accustomed to. I mean, do you see the flame dimming at all? Or is it something, I mean, is there something else on the horizon or you still see enough runway in the in the industry and the product that you have? Yeah, we, the, I don't have an, any ideas. I don't have a plan of what I would do next um, because I don't actually think I want to do any more software products as much as I've enjoyed them. Uh, I turned 43 uh, about a month ago and I feel like I've accomplished what I wanted to with kind of B2B SaaS software. And that's my wheelhouse now. And I just don't feel like I want to do the grind of starting another one, you know? So I don't, I'm, I, obviously someday I'll move on to something, but I, I still, I have two podcasts. I have a conference I throw three times a year. Uh, Sherry and I are publishing a book. I'm thinking about writing another, you know, it's like I have other stuff. I don't mm-hmm. need to start another business and I don't necessarily, like an actual, you know, kind of what I say, grind it out software company. Um, so I don't think I will ever do that again. But yeah, you're right. There will come a time where it'll be obvious, I think, when it's kind of time for me to to, to move on to my next steps. Well, it's interesting because of who your wife is, because I think um, you're, what I see with a lot of entrepreneurs where they go through and the, the grind that you refer to, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, it's the start, it's the immediate feedback of creating something that's tangible. And there's tangible, whether it's the code or the financial reports, and you're able to see like how well you're doing. And a lot of these people move in after they've kind of hit the, you know, hit the ball out of the park like you have, yeah, all of a sudden now that challenge is a little bit more intrinsic. So, you yeah. know, it's exactly what Sherry talks about all the time, right? Where, yep. you know, how do you challenge yourself in stuff that's not as measurable as all the stuff that you've done in the past? Yep, that's exactly right. So is, are you kind of doing that with the conferences and stuff? Because I know you're, you know, you're on the, the Zen Founder podcast, you're, you know, you're integrated in a lot of what Sherry does. I mean, is how, are you, do you see yourself kind of migrating into the more of that, that space or is it more just kind of still in the the journey search mode i i would say i'm more in the journey search mode i love helping sherry out and kind of being a backstop and and a sounding board for her but you know my my wheelhouse is is still kind of going in and mentally grinding stuff out on my own i think and that's where like a you know building a book or, or writing a book or building even i mean i was building like just simple tools hacking away last weekend and and that was super fun and i don't know if it'll ever be a business but i would love to spend six months, you know, just not doing much, uh, just you know, only doing the podcast and everything and then see what comes of that. Because in the past, something always does. The the universe calls and says, Hey, that was a good idea. Such as drip. <laughs> yep. That's right. Yeah. You know, Rob, as we're kind of wrapping up here, you know, is, with the couple of the journeys that you discussed with us and a lot of the things that we talked about, is there one thing that you'd either highlight for someone going through the journey or something that you would, you know, leave us with? I think something that one thing I did right and one thing I did poorly during the acquisition specifically is 
something I did right is I hired really a really good a team. I had a really good lawyer that I trusted. I had a really good CPA that I've had for years. So he was able to advise me on tax implications way early on. We were able to structure things in a way that made sense. And then uh, I actually had a, a broker who was advising me and helping with negotiation. Without that, I would have been a complete basket case. So that was something I did right. Something I did wrong, uh, and I wish I could do again, is as I said, I stressed myself out more than I should have during the acquisition. I really struggled for about six months, and I can never get that time back. And I, I have regrets of of how I, you know, potentially damaged relationships and just how I lived my life for for that half a year. Well, I think it's a fantastic advice because I mean, it's tough to it, hindsight bias is always twenty twenty, and that's what you know the whole purpose of getting people on that can share the wisdom like this. So I I appreciate it so much you coming on the show. If there's uh, one way for our listeners to get in touch with you, what would it be? It's to head to robwalling.com. That's super easy. (laughs) Thanks for coming on the show, Rob. Appreciate it. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thanks for sticking in there. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Rob. If I had three big takeaways that I had after interviewing Rob was, you know, the first one was how true he was to the principles of freedom, purpose, and relationships. And I really respect Rob and how much reflecting he did to get to understanding himself and what was important to him and what was crucial to his happiness. Because I think a lot of us realize after the fact or after selling a company, what was actually making us happy instead of looking at it in some future planning and some foresight. The second thing that I really took away from uh, talking with Rob was how well he thought about the scenario and plan for what might happen. It was not a knee-jerk situation. He thought about the different ramifications, the different outcomes, and then he backed into what he wanted. And he went to the table with the number that he needed and what was actually going to make him after happy afterwards, because that was how he was able to have a successful outcome in the happiness factor and the, the dollar amount, because he went to the table with the principles that were important to him. And the last takeaway that I had, which was an interesting one, was the internal conflict that Rob had throughout the negotiation standpoint. And I can relate, and I've seen so many other people go through this, where the emotions are so high as you're going through this negotiation because you need to protect what's right for yourself. But then also, usually that comes at the sacrifice of being who you are. Because as an entrepreneur, lots of us are giving, we're open, we're transparent, we're passionate. And so either having to subdue that and having to, you know, really focus on the practical stuff is very difficult for us, whether it's not telling your employees or not being exactly who you are to that buyer. It, it's it's a delicate balance and really having the, the strong people around you to support you and guide you along that way is nothing short of important. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Go on iTunes, give us a rating. I very much appreciate it. And until next week.